Welcome to the Thorax podcast. Um, today we're going to highlight non-eosinophilic asthma and specifically neutrophilic asthma. And I'm delighted to be talking to Peter Gibson, who's a professor of respiratory medicine at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. Um, Peter, uh, you've published two papers in uh, the last year in Thorax on the subject of neutrophilic asthma. The first in November 2011, uh, the first author of Baines et al. on systemic upregulation of neutrophil alpha defensins and serine proteases in neutrophilic asthma. And the second, which is in the latest issue of Thorax, July, by Esalifi et al., um, looking at a mouse model where sensitized mice are infected with Haemophilus influenzae and looking at the interaction between these inflammatory hits and how it modulates the airway inflammatory environment and uh, airway function. What I would like to do today is to uh, focus more on the clinical aspects of neutrophilic asthma, but I would like to go back to the papers and particularly uh, how they inform our clinical understanding of this uh, interesting asthma phenotype. Uh, one question I always get asked when I'm talking on this topic is how stable are these inflammatory phenotypes? And there is certainly a view out there that there's uh, a great deal of within-subject variability in sputum inflammatory cell counts. What are your thoughts on this uh, question? We find that in general the stability is good and it's related to a couple of factors. It's related to how you define the phenotype and secondly, how you select subjects. If you define the phenotype robustly, that, that's based on a sputum eosinophil cut point of 3%, then a number of studies have now shown that that's quite a stable classification. And for, for example, in our own studies, we find that if you define people as non-eosinophilic by having less than 3% eosinophils, then 70% of those will remain stable over several months. The second factor relates to subject selection. What that's to do with is specific triggers will induce a temporary or transient change in phenotype. So an allergen exposure might induce eosinophils, an infection might induce neutrophils, but then the person tends to revert back to their stable phenotype. Yes, there's, there's some new data on stability of phenotype published in the Blue Journal recently by McGrath et al. Um, and that showed that a large majority of patients uh, defined at one point as having non-eosinophilic asthma uh, remained non-eosinophilic. But on the other hand, um, also in the July issue of Thorax, we have a, a paper from uh, Louise Fleming showing a great deal of variability in children with severe asthma and their inflammatory phenotype. Do you think there might be differences between adults and children? Yeah, I think there are differences between adults and children. We, for example, rarely see persistent neutrophilic asthma in children. We see non-eosinophilic asthma, but it's not, there's not an elevation of neutrophils. That's one difference. In children, 
in the atopic asthma age range, so that's say about 6 to 12, with clinical asthma, a large majority of those are eosinophilic. And our experience is that the eosinophilic phenotype is the least stable. It changes with allergen exposure, treatment adherence or treatment dose changes. Yes, the, the paper in the Blue Journal again showed a subgroup of eosinophilic patients that were intermittently eosinophilic. And the, these patients seem to behave very similarly to the patients who had uh, persistent eosinophilia in terms of their response to corticosteroids. So uh, they look rather, rather similar. W- one other thing that I hear a lot when I talk about this subject is that people listening to my talks glaze over the moment I discuss induced sputum because there's no way that they're going to be able to do this. Uh, in their ordinary, everyday clinical practice. Are there other ways that um, clinicians might recognize non-eosinophilic asthma and uh, other tools that might be useful in the clinic? Uh, I think there are a couple. So firstly, a raised blood eosinophil count is pretty specific for eosinophilic asthma, but it's not very sensitive. So that can tell you that the person's got eosinophilic asthma if you find it. We find exhaled nitric oxide useful uh, at picking up eosinophilic asthma. And the third way, which is the way that most doctors use, is uh, empiric trials of treatment. So they give steroids. If the person doesn't respond, then you could infer that that person has non-eosinophilic asthma. At the moment, that's standard practice, but the problem with that approach is that you waste a lot of drug and you expose people to both unnecessary doses and duration of steroid just because it's more convenient than actually going out and measuring the inflammatory phenotype. I consider that a lazy approach, particularly given the strength of the data that is now out there about the benefits of inflammatory phenotyping for people with asthma. Yes, and I think it's also a very difficult call to make when you intervene with uh, an inhaled steroid. You tend to do so at a time when the patient's condition is troubling them more than usual and uh, there's a higher potential for regression to the mean which may be misinterpreted as a treatment response. And the next time that the patient becomes symptomatic, the dose is ratcheted up and it, it can be actually quite difficult to unmake a diagnosis of steroid-responsive airways disease uh, in a patient. Is that, is that your experience as well? Yes, that's right. There's a lot of variables in giving uncontrolled drug therapies and you can get fooled easily if you don't have objective measures to help, help you select drugs or drug doses. Up to, well, 60 or 70% of uh, patients with asthma are non-eosinophilic, according to the Blue Journal paper. Yet, virtually every patient with asthma in the UK, and I'm sure also Australia, um, is encouraged to take inhaled steroids. Do you think they're of any benefit in patients uh, with this phenotype? I'm mindful that the mouse paper that we we uh, discussed earlier, really showed no evidence of a response to um, dexamethasone in sensitized mice who were co-infected with 
Haemophilus and had a neutrophilic pattern of disease. And as a supplementary, is it possible that steroids may be making things worse in patients with uh, neutrophilic asthma? Yeah, so I think to answer that, we have to split up non-eosinophilic asthma into neutrophilic and non-neutrophilic forms. So if we just deal with the neutrophilic forms, then there is now pretty good evidence, I think, that steroids worsen the neutrophilia in the airway and in other systems they actually activate TLR2 responses which is a plausible way that macrophage activation could potentiate neutrophilia. So in that sense they could be harmful and I think the paper in Thorax uh, from Dougie Cowan and Robin Taylor showed pretty clearly that steroids could increase neutrophils and that's also confirmed in that blue, blue journal paper you referred to. Is it enough to cause a persistent neutrophilic asthma? Uh, probably for a proportion, but not, it doesn't explain all of the neutrophilic asthma that's out there. But it does indicate that this is probably not a steroid-responsive disease, and when we see it, we should be backing off on steroid doses. Yeah, yes, but it is actually very difficult in practice to not use steroids. And uh, one thought I had was that perhaps rather than saying this is a steroid unresponsive disease or steroids might potentially be making things worse, uh, perhaps we should focus on there are better treatments than steroids for these patients. And uh, I'm interested in your views on what alternative treatments are available. Yeah. Well, I think firstly, long-acting bronchodilators and my view is the reason there's been general improvement in asthma care when these combination drugs are used is that because the steroids target the patients with eosinophilic asthma, the long-acting bronchodilators target those with neutrophilic or non-eosinophilic asthma. So both groups get covered. The cost of that is unnecessary drug therapy in the different phenotypes. But there are other alternatives. We've looked in severe asthma and found that macrolide antibiotics can be beneficial. And in other airways disease that are characterised by a non-eosinophilic or neutrophilic pattern, such as COPD or cystic fibrosis, then there's also evidence that macrolides are beneficial. So we're at the moment engaged in a large study trying to look at that in gene classes 3, 4 and 5 uh, to see if adding on a macrolide will benefit patients and if, if that benefit is restricted to those with non-eosinophilic asthma. And the existing evidence, and I'm thinking about the uh, Simpson paper from a few years back on macrolides in severe asthma, um, this was uh, a study in severe asthma without any um, further phenotyping, but were the beneficial effects of macrolides in that study yeah, confined to uh, an inflammatory phenotype or were they seen across the board? Yeah, so no, what we did there was we recruited people with both phenotypes, but we stratified their randomization uh, a priori and, and set up to analyze by phenotype. Um, at the beginning of the study. And when we did that, we found that 
the benefits of the macrolides were restricted to the non-eosinophilic phenotype. We didn't find benefits in the eosinophilic phenotype of severe right. asthma. Right, and that was a pre-specified um, subgroup. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to turn now, Peter, to uh, the paper that's published in um, the July issue of Thorax by Esselifi et al. and Phil Hansbrough, the, uh, yeah. the, the last author. Um, now, I'm not a great fan of uh, animal model studies, but I have to say that this is one of the most interesting and I think important papers that I've read for a long time. And what it attempts to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is look at the way that a bacterial infection with Haemophilus influenzae might pervert a, a TH2 allergic type airway response. Um, and um, It's a complex paper and it has to be read very carefully to appreciate what's been found. And I, I may not have got all the uh, uh, the salient points, but could you summarise what what you felt were the main uh, clinically important findings of, of this um, animal model study? So I think the way to look at it is, is that this is examining the interaction between two very common triggers of airways disease. And one is bacterial infection with Haemophilus, and the second is allergen sensitisation and allergen exposure. What the paper is trying to do is firstly work out can you induce neutrophilic asthma and if you can, what is it about the exposures that does that? And I think the, perhaps the, the fascinating thing here is that these are mice that are genetically predisposed to asthma, so not different to the, say the child of a parent with asthma. If they get the infection first and then whilst there's still evidence of immune activation from the infection, you come along with an intensive allergen exposure, instead of getting the typical allergen response of an eosinophilia, you get, get this response of neutrophilic asthma. Uh, you get a persistent airway neutrophilia. The features are resistant to dexamethasone, so you induce steroid resistance. And then the other intriguing thing was that the um, animal fails to clear the infection, so the infection becomes persistent. The outcomes really are many of the features that we see in patients that we're treating with airway diseases characterised by neutrophilic bronchitis. And I think in the past we'd thought, well, maybe they're two independent processes. Maybe allergy and infection have got nothing to do with each other. But the, the flaw with that argument is that most of our patients with neutrophilic asthma are in fact allergic. What this paper does in thorax is give an explanation of how allergy and infection could interact to produce the neutrophilic phenotype. It sort of supports the hypothesis that you've put forward, Ian, about the multiple hits that are required to lead about to the induction and clinical presentation of airway disease. Do you think it might be a more general phenomenon? I'm thinking uh, now about smoking, asthma, patients with asthma who are exposed to endotoxin and I'm also thinking about work where allergen challenge has been preceded by endotoxin exposure or by exposure to pollutants. Do you think this can be generalized beyond bacterial infection? Yes, I do. There will be differences with the different stimuli because 
there seems to be incredible specificity in the types of immune responses that different stimuli initiate. But I think the principle that too potent stimuli such as infection and allergen sensitization on a person predisposed to airway disease has the potential to set up chronic airway disease. One of the things that struck me reading this paper, well, there are a number of things, but ethanol-inactivated haemophilus influenzae also suppressed eosinophilic airway inflammation. Um, I think I'm, I'm right, right in saying that. So it's not infection per se. It must be some sort of recognition of a cell wall um, molecule. Am I right in thinking, of, thinking that? That's right. So it's the antigens are still there, so you can still initi- initiate an immune response probably an innate immune response, so it's the molecular patterns on the surface of the bacteria, and it doesn't require active infection for that immune recognition to happen. Interestingly, when we reported, uh, so Simpson reported cases of neutrophilic asthma in thorax and showed evidence of innate immune activation in neutrophilic asthma, and also increased levels of endotoxin in the sputum of patients with neutrophilic asthma. That was sort of the clinical observation that, that was we're trying to reproduce in this animal model study. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out that it, Baines in the earlier paper showed clear evidence of systemic upregulation of uh, neutrophils. What we have is a paradox of more neutrophils in the airway, but uh, the bacteria are not being cleared. So they're there, but they're not working well. What's wrong with them? Their weapons to immobilize the bacteria are not working properly. So one obvious factor is that the ability to clear the bacteria by phagocytosis is impaired. That's shown in the Phil Hansborough's paper. But it's also been shown in some human studies where macrophages from patient groups that you might expect to have a lot of neutrophilic asthma, such as severe asthma, have been shown to have impaired macrophage phagocytosis of bacteria and by implication reduced ability to clear the bacteria. So what this paper does, it provides a mechanistic sequence of how you can get to that endpoint. As clinicians, we see the endpoint of neutrophilia and chronic infection, and this provides a mechanistic sequence of how you can get there. Returning to this uh, theme of whether there may be a subgroup of patients with uh, inflammatory airway disease who are harmed by steroids, and certainly in COPD, we've recently found tantalizing evidence that uh, you can identify a subgroup of patients with exacerbations of COPD who do worse with prednisolone than with placebo. They're okay. characterized by a, a, a non-eosinophilic uh, a pattern of disease. This whole concept of interaction between different inflammatory stimuli to the airway and how it modifies what is a very simple and easily suppressed immune response and makes it a much more chronic uh, and uh, difficult to switch off and potentially a more damaging inflammatory response uh, is, is fascinating. Do you think that people with this pattern of disease get more airway destruction and bronchiectasis and fixed airflow obstruction? Yeah, I definitely think they get more fixed airflow obstruction. And I think there's 
increasing numbers of studies showing this relationship between persistent neutrophilia and more severe airflow obstruction. I don't have any data about bronchiectasis, but when we look at CTs from these patients, they certainly have increased airway wall thickening, and that differentiates them from, say, COPD in general, where there's emphysema but not as much wall thickening. So it certainly has the potential to lead to structural changes in the airway wall and it's tantalising to think that that might go on to bronchiectasis in some people. Yes, and just to finish, I suppose the archetypal example, uh, to my mind, of a, of a multi-hit type airways disease is aspergillus-associated airways disease, which I know you have an interest in. And this is clearly a group of patients where very extensive airway damage occurs and um, the proximal bronchiectasis, fixed airflow obstruction. My feeling is that aspergillus not only is acting as a, an allergen, but is also potentially colonizing and infecting the airway. So you have really two hits in one. What do you think of that idea? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. So we showed that in allergic aspergillosis, you get evidence of that. You get the neutrophil response as well as an eosinophil response, both consistent with that idea. And I think what aspergillus does, is it demonstrates that not all bugs are the same and aspergillus is particularly potent and destructive. For example, the proteases that it releases induce quite a amount of epithelial activation and ultimately destruction. And that might be why bronchiectasis is a much more frequent finding in aspergillus disease, say, than it is with some other stimuli. So it could be, for example, that we might get less bronchiectasis with the haemophilus colonised people because haemophilus doesn't have uh, such a strong protease response as, for example, aspergillus does. Peter, it's been uh, terrific talking to you. It always is. And thank you very much for giving us uh, time to make this podcast. I think th this area of research is so important. Listeners... Look out for patients with asthma who are not responding to a traditional steroid-based therapy and who may be coughing purulent sputum and have positive sputum cultures. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we say goodbye, Peter? This is challenging work. It challenges our current concepts and tells us that our treatment approaches can't really be as simple as we try and make them. We do have to accommodate them to the complexity of the patient who's before us. And I'm really pleased that you're highlighting this aspect uh, in the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. Goodbye to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be making this a regular feature. Please uh, visit the website regularly to update uh, on the latest podcast. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.